Welcome to episode 12 of the Salsa Soul Food Podcast. We're jamming. We're jamming away. So how are you doing? Um, Great. Can't complain. I, f- I, feel, I feel lonely. I feel yes. like I want to um, do things that felt normal back in the day. Mm-hmm. We all feel that way. I'm nothing special. I feel like there is this weird dichotomy with feeling like you had all this energy that you wanted to spend on things that you did in in the the before times the past life the before times that wasn't doesn't feel real anymore but also this like dread and laziness that's just like fighting with each other yeah it's a, it's a storm it's a shit storm <laughs> there's really no other way to describe it as it's a storm it's a shit storm yeah I, yeah, it's like all of these conflicting feelings and energies. It's like all coming to a head. Yeah, but they, no one came here to hear me bitch and moan about that. Okay, so tell they me about... fun, light, friendly talk. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> tell me about your January challenge. Okay, so get this. So um, I know it's really early. It's October when you're listening to this, or maybe later if, you, if you've waited, if you slept on us, you know, and you're going to our backlogs. Um Every January, I like to do some type of challenge. Um, a lot of the times it involves cutting out alcohol because, you know, we just partied a lot all December. We drank a lot, New Year's Eve, that kind of stuff. Um, but also it can be physical challenges. It's basically like, it's basically salsa soul food as a brand, baby. It's like do whatever you pick one of those categories and stick with mm-hmm. it for the whole month. Get a group together. Um, my group. Uh, in particular, is doing um, daily yoga. So throughout all January, we're going to be doing some yoga. We might even like meet up on some Zoom to do like some yoga together. Um, and and two of us, or maybe you as well, are you going to be doing no caffeine? Yeah. Okay, cool. So we're gonna. Well, there's a couple people like in the group who don't do caffeine anyway. So like they get a free, they get a freebie. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't usually do it. I do it like with tea, but I don't do it as much. Yeah. So we're gonna do. We're gonna say no caffeine. I'm personally gonna do no alcohol, although that's not something that other people have to do. I just like one month a year where I don't drink. Just it's it feels nice just to be like yeah. It's nice to also like it's not like you, a person doesn't have self control, but like it becomes so normal, especially through quarantine. Like, oh my God, just the amount of just like, oh, it's the weekend now. Like the only thing that signifies the weekend is now like I drink a little bit. Yeah, because you're still in your house. (laughs) Exactly. So it's kind of nice to have just like that cut off. It's like, hey, don't don't ask me for, I mean, this is quarantine, so no one's going to do it. But like, don't ask me for drinks. Like this this month is, we're going And you can save some money because I'm always thinking about the dollars. You are always thinking about the dollars uh yeah absolutely save i mean you money. could save up to like i mean depending on how much you drink you could save up to like five and five hundred more i mean i don't know that. i've been thinking about that just because we're we don't go to bars anymore but like the amount mm-hmm. that i would just because you don't care i mean at least i didn't i know i yeah. mean i'm not i'm not rich but i at least had enough money where I could you're not to- rich <laughs> <laughs> yeah look at this great apartment i'm in <laughs> no i'm just joking no i'm not either uh there was at least one listener who thought I might have been rich. That's a very rich voice. <laughs> yeah. <they> Sounds wealthy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so 
like i but when when you're there you're like i don't know especially with my girlfriend i'm like you know get what you want we're 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 ballers here tonight we get one drink in us and we're ballers that doesn't oh yeah it gives you that false sense of wealth yeah i might i might have i, I might have been looking at prices before the first drink but like after i'm like whatever give me that 16 dollar brew like <laughs> don't yeah. do that mark i mean the, the amount of money i'm saving right now is ridiculous so yeah okay so that's my challenge if you you should all like listeners set up some challenges if you're feeling it you could it could possibly be the same as ours we'll be doing some check-ins and probably at the end of january have like a nice powwow with everybody to see how it went yeah. In this episode, we are interviewing a fabulous guest who's going to talk a little bit about health, anxiety, OCD, and much more. So stay tuned and we hope you enjoy. Welcome back to the Salsa Soul Food Podcast. And today on the show, we have a special guest, Laura Minnery, who is going to share her story with both OCD and illness anxiety. She's based in Boston and is currently leading a virtual uh, illness anxiety or health anxiety group. She's also a young adult peer specialist and is studying to become a psychiatric nurse practitioner to continue to continue to help others navigate anxiety in a medical setting. So thanks for joining us today, Laura. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah, of course. And so let's just start off. Tell me a little bit about yourself and your background. Um, so um, I am uh, in my 30s and I've grown up and lived in Massachusetts my whole life. Um, I have dealt with a lot of like mental health challenges throughout my life running from childhood to now. Um, And that has kind of really been like a driving factor in like where I've gone and what I've done. And now I'm just kind of finally at this place where um, I am sort of moving towards like a career really for the first time in my life. Um, last year I started working as a young adult peer specialist and then now um, am taking the prerequisite classes to go to nursing school so that I can be a psychiatric nurse practitioner um, because I think that there's a lot of interconnectivity between our physical and mental health and I believe really strongly in using medication when appropriate and I'd love to be able to prescribe and do therapy like in my practice um and yeah I have two cats and um a husband and yeah just I love swimming that's something about me um and yeah just pretty pretty casual person I guess it's weird like talking about yourself but yeah no it's okay no I I, I know for sure it, it is it is strange and no I love that you're going into um the medical field or becoming a psych- psychiatric nurse also because I think that just with what you've gone through and your experience with mental health I think that just bringing that background and that knowledge as well is just so nice to just have that comfort when you're 
when you could maybe like recognize certain things in in your pa- in your patients that you kind of see in yourself and and vice versa. So I think that's admirable. Thanks. Yeah, I think that you know it'll be different. I think because as a as like a peer specialist, you know, the role is centered around like sharing your own experiences and being really open about that. And then when you move into like, like a nurse practitioner role or like a therapy role, like the boundaries are totally different. So I think that it'll be, it'll be helpful in the sense that I think it might give me insight into what to be thinking about and looking for, but then just not like the sharing part. Mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, there's like other places in my life for that. I think that'll be there. No, that's great. And can you explain to the audience a little bit about what uh, obsessive compulsive disorder is and then illness anxiety and maybe the differences and how they're connected? So um, OCD, um, obsessive compulsive disorder, um, you know, some people are familiar with, um, it's varies widely across everyone who is diagnosed with it or experiences it. Um, sometimes it, it's, you know, obsessional thinking accompanied by compulsive actions in relation to that thinking. Sometimes it's purely obsessional thinking, um, it, it, it also, you know, um, and then, so with illness anxiety disorder, um, it has a lot of similar features to OCD in the sense that it, and it's been called like health anxiety, um, but I think there's some confusion around that term. Um, and so like illness anxiety disorder shares the commonalities it has with OCD is like, the obsessional thinking, um, the, um, you know, a lot of folks with it, with, um, illness anxiety have, um, obsessive thoughts about they have a disease or they're going to die or they're, they're sick. And then their compulsions might look more like excessive doctor visits or monitoring their vital signs or, um, or like either, you know, like obsessive exercising. Um, and I think it, yeah, so, so it has like some of those similar features, but it is different because what I've seemingly found is that it, it's so much more on the like intrusive thoughts side. That's another kind of OCD is just mm-hmm. like really intrusive intense thoughts that like you can't shake um and so that's kind of the way I see them as being connected but then also just like very very different too because with illness anxiety I think a lot of folks have really intense physical symptoms that go along with it and I and that's from my own experience um and from others who I've known or met, you know, who, who experienced it as well, the physical symptoms can really be like the driver of it. And so, for instance, um, I have always, ever since I, I first started dealing with this, um, when I had my first panic attack, 
10 years ago is when it started. And I always had really intense physical symptoms. My chest would hurt so, 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 so bad. And I felt like I couldn't breathe and I'd be just totally convinced I had, I was having a heart attack or I had heart disease or something. And, you know, I just couldn't shake it because, you know, you have a doctor who you're supposed to trust telling you that like, I, I see nothing wrong with you. And yet I, why is my chest like hurting all the time? Like they have to be wrong. Like that's the way that I think, you know, our minds can work when like we deal with that. And just like this inability to like accept what's being presented to us by like an expert who's supposed to know. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's a great breakdown for us. And And I think it's also tricky, too, with navigating our medical system in the first place, like just someone who maybe doesn't even deal with as many like, um, you know, mental health issues, or at least they don't think that they do. It's uh, it's already hard enough. And then to trust somebody uh, and then to find the line between what is a true symptom or what is being caused by my or instigated by my like illness anxiety. And I feel like that's at least for me, that seems to be like the part that keeps me up at night is like, yeah, yeah, that's, you're totally right. And I think that like, it can be so hard to accept, I think like the power that our minds actually have over like the way that we feel because, you know, like, I mean, I just think about like all those years that, and even now, you know, when it comes up, like all those times where I was just like, my chest is like really hurting. Like there is like, how can I not be dying right now? Like, and mm-hmm. just, you know, but then having my doctor be like, no, this is anxiety. Like it, it's oddly, like it, it feels like oddly dismissive, but also like, cause I'm just like, no, you just don't understand. So, yeah. um, but yes, like I think that those are the those that line is really what'll keep you up at night and keep you really focusing on it. Yeah, for sure. One second, I just have something to add. I just want to make sure, Laura, are you touching like a keyboard or something? Oh, sorry, I was playing with my gum wrapper. I'm fidgety. Okay. Sorry, about <laughs> that's that. fine. No problem. Right. It's it's really not that bad, but um. Do you want me to go back? I'm sorry. I'll put it away. Not at all. No, you don't have to go back. I've done like crazy things. (laughs) (laughs) She's had her cell phone going off like during episodes. So yeah, I can't, but I was like, not even remotely like, oh, they can totally hear this. No, I didn't even recognize. I just figured I has the ear on him. (laughs) Yeah, I just figured I'd say it like while we're early in the episode. Yeah, cool. Good. I'm glad you did. It's totally fine. Um, Let's see. Um, Um, can I add one thing too? Yeah, go ahead. And I just, part of what you said about like navigating our health system, like our current, like in the United States, um, system of insurance and seeking care Mm -hmm. is really punitive for folks with mental illness. It can be incredibly challenging to first of all, find a provider and then finding a provider who takes insurance can be Mm -hmm. even harder because 
it's become so much more lucrative for providers to be in a private practice and not contract with insurers. And then you get left with all of these folks with untreated mental illness because they have no, they have no way of getting care. Or I think of, you know, like undocumented folks who are Mm -hmm. living in this country who, who are dealing with really toxic stress and can't get access to care because, you know, sometimes community health centers don't have providers who, who know how to deal with that kind of like mental stress. And so I do feel really, I mean, I'm like a really big believer in like healthcare change for sure. Cause Mm. I just know for me, when I first started seeking care, like I couldn't find anybody that took insurance. And so I got a lot of really subpar care. I got some great care, but like, I also got some really bad care and and I was just fortunate to to be able to to do private pay options like later on to like actually get what I I needed. Yeah, no, I I 100% agree. It's like a privilege. Healthcare is a privilege, but it should be a right for everyone to have care. And I also work um, with immigrants, placing them in jobs, but also recognizing that there's a mental health aspect that I of course, recognize, especially during the pandemic, but it's hard because I, that's not really where I'm supposed to be helping them with when we have certain trainings on, um, ways to like work with them with what, what they're going through, but not in like a mental health, um, setting necessarily. Uh, so I definitely agree with you. And I worked for a mental health insurance for mass health before, and that was tough just seeing, how a lot of people were denied certain services, um, or, or couldn't even, um, become members of the insurance at all. So I think that's a whole nother conversation too. And then there's language barriers and then cultural barriers. And so, yeah, I def- I'm glad that you, you brought that up. Uh, and to go back to you a little bit, uh, if you could like take us back to sort of when you first noticed or kind of recognized your OCD or illness anxiety or illness anxiety disorder and kind of bring us back to that if you can. Yeah. So my, I have been living with this for almost 10 years. It'll be 10 years in November. Um, And I was never a particularly like worrisome youth or like early, you know, or young adults, I just was kind of like, yeah, whatever. Like I've done tons of things that now just shock me, which is probably true for most people. But when I had my first panic attack in 2010, um, November of 2010, um, I was just hanging out at home with my brothers and I got like all of a sudden really, really, really bad chest pains and my heart started racing and my arms went numb and I felt really dizzy. And I was just like said to my, my younger brother, I was like, I I think I'm like having a heart attack. Can you please take Mm -hmm. me to the hospital? 
And so, you know, I love my brother very much and he, he took me and, and we went there and I, I, I mean, I, it was the, fr I'd never been to an emergency room before. Like, I just was like, you know, and the whole drive there, I was just trying to understand like what was going on. And so I get there, you know, they usher me through, like, I, I mean, I feel like there just wasn't that many people there or something because emergency rooms aren't usually like this as I've learned later. But like, mm -hmm. you know, they kind of usher you through, they do like the normal stuff that they do. And they're just like, yeah, like, you know, they do like an EKG and they, they take a chest x-ray or whatever. And, and they're just like, yeah, there's nothing wrong with you. Like, this is, we're going to say that this was just a panic attack. And I was just like, like, what? Like, that's not like a thing for me. That's something my mother deals with. Like, I, <laughs> I don't get these. And so... Yeah, like I just couldn't, so then after that, I mean, the panic disorder is like really what was like the catalyst for like the illness anxiety because I just started having panic attacks like, you know, at least once a day, like moving forward. And like, I I just, for like a, at least like four or five months, like after mm -hmm. that, I was having like one a day and I was going to my primary care doctor at the time and then I was going back to the emergency room other times and I I just literally could not like accept I'm just like like it doesn't make sense that like a week ago I was like living my life and doing all the things that I was doing and all of a sudden now like my reality is just like constant chest pain and like mm obsessing about the fact that I'm about to die and and I just like I mean that was really like where it started for me is just those panic attacks and then that just that total like you know those those I, I like I've said I don't know if I had said this you know already here but like the physical symptoms are things I have always really like experienced hard like that's like the foundation of my my illness anxiety and I, you know, I just could not accept that, like, all of a sudden, like, yeah, like, you just wake up and it's, this is, this is your life now. So, and I think it's, and then, you know, it kind of just kept snowballing for, for many years, like, sometimes super, super, super bad times, sometimes, like, okay times, and then you know, other times, like, just in total crisis. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing that. And you mentioned that you're, that's something your mother dealt with. Did you ever, and I know everyone has different connections with their particular panic attacks or mental health in general. Did you feel like it was, like, linked to something in the family? Or did you feel like it was, because I know sometimes things just happen, too. Um, I mean, I definitely, like, I mean, there's like research, you know, that actually shows like the correlation between a parent having a mental illness or panic attacks and then like children having it as well. Um, I'm the only one of my siblings and there's four of us who, um, who seems to have inherited this lovely gift from my, my mother. Um, but no, I, I just didn't really put it together. Honestly, I just, 
But I also had like a very complicated relationship with my mom at that point. And I think that by the time, you know, I actually did start to like, be like, okay, maybe this is just panic. And then now I'm just obsessing over like dying. I really just resented her so much because I felt like it was her fault, <laughs> which yeah. of course is not true, but that's just how I felt like in the moment. Yeah, no, for sure. And I like to say that because I know that like some people will ask me sometimes like, oh, why, why are you anxious? And sometimes there is no reason. So I'm not trying to make it about, it's not always about the family. Sometimes it just, it just happens too. Um, so I think it's important to, to bring that up. But in my family, pretty much everyone's dealing with it all the time. So I don't know which is worse, my case or yours. No, we're not comparing, but <laughs> shout out to my family. <laughs> oh God. They don't all know, but I do. So <laughs> if only yeah. I could like go, I swear, like there's just the part of me that's like, diagnosing like other family members <laughs> where I'm just like oh no you've got this going on right like like my gr I and it's funny because my I now that I, this is just coming to me now but like my mm -hmm. dad's mother who I didn't really know super well like we just weren't a close family but like she we saw her and I I can always remember now my mom just like calling her like a hypochondriac and like mm. she was always convinced that she had something there was something wrong with her and so now I'm just like oh so that's maybe part of this too is just like you know my dad's mother like having you know this what was because you know illness anxiety disorder was originally like hypochondria um and so yeah, I mean, I just think there is such a connection, I think, between family and, and that. But, and then also, you know, just the environment of, like, your family that you're into, I think, plays, like, a huge role. And that maybe some of the, some of the, the things that, like, caused me anxiety within my family when I was a child that I kind of like repressed in like my teen years and in my early twenties, like really caught up with me, like in that time when this all started. When it all came to a head. Yeah. And so, yeah, so you're saying sort of the, the panic disorder sort of kicked in and then that's where the physical symptoms also were really present. And then, um, kind of from what you said like you've kind of followed up with like doctor's visits and more like testing that became um more like habitual just for like people out there who might want to identify obviously it can look very different but that's kind of how it happened yeah so I mean I think that like it 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 was like yeah the physical symptoms that I was having all the time going to the doctor obsessively going to the emergency room all the time, um, researching everything I could possibly find about my arm hurts or my leg, my leg is sore. So like I'm having like an embolism and I'm going to die. And like, um, also, you know, compulsively monitoring or obsessive compulsively monitoring my vital signs. Like, I had all this like equipment that I used to use, like a pulse oximeter on my hand that like measures the 
oxygen level in your blood and measures your pulse and a, mm-hmm. a blood pressure thing and an EKG or a, a pocket EKG machine. I mean, just like all this, this stuff that like, I would just be like, okay, you know, it's, it's two o'clock. Now it's time to like do my midday, like check of like my vital signs. Um, and that was kind of where like the ritualizing started to come in was just like, okay, well, and I mean, at my worst, you know, I was, I was like checking my vital signs like every hour. And then sometimes Mm -hmm. it was like, okay, well, you know, I'll, I'll try to do it like a few times a day. And, and, you know, it led to, I mean, I would hide it like from, from my husband and, you know, even before we were married, like, you know, he, I would hide it from him and just say, you know, he didn't know I had this device or we'd be sitting on the couch and I'd start freaking out. And then, you know, I'd have it in my pocket and like holding it off, like, you know, to my side so that he couldn't see me or, you know, in the movie theater with friends that had happened where like, Mm -hmm. you know, you're in a dark movie theater and I'm like trying, I had this like device lighting up and I'm like trying to take my my measure my pulse and like my oxygen like saturation while I'm watching King Arthur so <laughs> oh God, I'm just laughing at the King Arthur part because <laughs> I wasn't expecting that no that's great like to paint a picture for everyone to to understand because I think it's so unclear for so many people so that's that's really helpful and at what point did you start to see like a psychiatrist or a, or a therapist to like take it to that like the mental health um side yeah so I for the first what what do I say maybe like four years maybe five like the timeline feels kind of murky now but like Mm -hmm. for the first four or five years I just like lived like that and it was terrible and so when I um and I I had a part of that was because sometimes I had insurance sometimes I didn't and so um and I have a lot of like co-occurring um mental health diagnoses that you know that I have that I deal with um so it was basically after um I had um a major depression where I just didn't leave my bed or I I was living with my husband at the time we weren't married yet but so we were living together and I I didn't leave our bedroom or like our bed for like six months and so finally you know I I had like I was having like suicidal ideation at that point and then I just kind of told my husband and and I was like I feel like I need to do something about this now so um yeah so I started seeing a therapist at the time and she um and she was actually really great introduction to therapy as a as an adult and coming off of this she was just like this wonderful she was a psych fellow like getting her her PsyD um at this wonderful place that actually I don't it's I don't think it exists anymore but it was called um the Boston Institute of Psychotherapy and it was like a nonprofit mm-hmm. practice that offered like lower cost um care and they took most insurances um 
And so I started seeing her and then she, she finished her program and moved back to her home country. Um, and so I kind of got passed off from therapist to therapist and it, 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 no one, I really didn't really connect with anyone as much. And then when I got hooked up with the person I see now, um, which was like a year later, probably she immediately was just like, I think you need to see a psychiatrist like right now. So she referred me to the first psychiatrist that I ever saw. Um, and he, it's kind of complicated because like I had like a misdiagnosis at that point. So like the medication he gave me like did nothing for my anxiety. And I was like trying to explain to him like, yes, this depression is a problem that I want to solve. And then also like the fact that like I am, you know, like having chest pain all day long and then ruminating on it and like monitoring my vital signs and like, you know, can't have a job because like I'm convinced I'm going to die at work and needing to be running off. To, I need all my free time to be able to go to the doctor or the emergency room. And so my first like try at meds was like just not very successful. Like it just didn't really do anything for me. Um, and so, yeah, I just continued to struggle with my anxiety, but like the depression started to get better. So, you know, the psychiatrist was kind of like, oh, well, see, you know, you're responding great. Like you're not feeling depressed anymore and, and look at this. And, you know, this will keep you from, you know, from becoming manic because it was like, you know, they, like I was diagnosed with bipolar at the time. And so he, yeah, I, he and he just like wasn't listening to me. And I think that that's like a lot, a lot of folks who see prescribers like run into that with, I found it more with like psychiatrists than like with like nurse practitioners is just that like, well, I'm a doctor. I know what's best. I know what's right for you. And you need to like be compliant. Like that's like the word they use is like med compliant. So it's just like, okay, but I'm telling you that like, this isn't working. Like I still feel like total shit. Oh, can I swear? Yeah, you can. So sorry. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I was, and, and he just like, didn't, he wasn't like taking me seriously. And so then like, while I was kind of like reaching the end of like my tether with this guy, um, I, we had like a tragedy like in our family, um, which kind of like was just this like total convergence of like everything that I deal with. But basically um, my husband's mom, so my mother-in-law, she uh, was the healthiest person I've ever met in my life, you know, super nutritious, you know, nutrition conscious, really like into physical activity and yoga and, and just like, you know, she was like that no GMO, like all organic person that like you think of. And, and she was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. Um, and she died five weeks later. Um, and so in those five weeks, I basically, because like 
my sister-in-law and her family live um, in DC and my husband was working full time to provide our insurance and like our money um, in flow. Uh, so I basically had to care for her while she was dying. And, um, and it was just like this mix of like hospitals and procedures and chemo and like, and all within five weeks. I mean, it was just like a whirlwind like experience. And, you know, for the last week of her, her life, she was, she was hospitalized and couldn't move basically. Um, and so watching her die and having to take care of her while she died was just probably like the most triggering thing I could have experienced other than my husband's death. Like, um, and so basically, yeah, after she died, I kind of, you know, I, 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 and I, 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 I will say, I'll give myself like a ton of credit. Like I really held it together, like for those, those five, probably seven weeks, like until she, like everything was done and her apartment was cleaned out. Like I was like spearheading so much, like, you know, I, I took care of her medical stuff. And then after she passed away, my sister-in-law really did like a lot of the stuff with the funeral and like I helped out and then you know, finishing clearing out her apartment. But I mean, after all that was over, I mean, I just like totally collapsed. I mean, I just like completely, completely fell apart. It was, and that was honestly like the worst I had ever been. Um, just in and out of the emergency room, literally like three times a week for two months having, I was in therapy three times a week. Like I was just like, and I was also like, taking and needing to talk to my therapist like multiple times a week, like during that when we weren't in session and I would just go into these sessions and I would just cry and cry and cry and cry for like an hour straight and just be like, I'm dying. Like I, there is something wrong with me. Um, and so then the real turning point for me was eventually she was just like, I feel like you're either going to need, you need a, like a higher level of care basically. So she, um, she referred me to um, this program called BHP, which is the behavioral health partial hospitalization program at McLean hospital, which is one of the, it's one of the best psychiatric hospitals in the country in the United States. Um, and so I went there um, and I got diagnosed with, um, or I got linked with their, their like psychiatrist who was assigned to me while I was in that program uh, was just like, oh no, this is like really clearly like illness anxiety disorder slash OCD. Like that's, this is absolutely like what this is. Um, and so we made some changes to my medication um, and then BHP, um, is a two week max program. Usually like sometimes I'll do three, but it's mostly like a two week, like, and for, I guess for people who don't know, like a partial hospitalization is like, it's like a day program, basically. Like you go, it's not like you're committed to like a, a locked unit or anything like that. You go and you spend like nine to five there and you do groups and you meet with an individual counselor and then you there's like a psychiatrist that's so like this really intensive 
outpatient program. Um, and so after I left that, that psychiatrist who I saw, who I ended up sticking with for several years, um, well, not several, a few, um, and she sent me to um, OCDI, which is the OCD Institute at McLean, same hospital. Um, yeah, that was really long winded. <laughs> no, this is great. I'm, I love like listening to everything. And yeah, I give you so much credit for dealing with your mother-in-law. Um, not for dealing with, but for like helping her. And also like colon cancer is one of like kind of like my triggers. So when you said that, I was like, I cannot even imagine having to deal with that with like somebody that I love or care about. It's it's like really scary. Um, and so do you feel too that, I don't know if I'm wording this correctly, but that was in a way like an exposure therapy for you, like dealing like with that whole experience and maybe explain a little bit about what exposure therapy could be for people. So I do think it was an exposure, although I did not have that language at the time. Yeah. I didn't know, you know, what that was. Um, but so an exposure or exposure therapy, um, or ERP is like exposure response prevention. Um, it's, it's like the, it's like the primary kind of, or it's one of the two, but kind of the main like um, therapies that's used to treat OCD. Um, and it's like kind of in a nutshell, it's you, you kind of like rank, like what are your anxieties? What are your fears? And you put them on a scale of like, let's say one to 10. Um, and then you do, so like, an example from me is like, you know, I, I have this fear of dying and like, that's, you know, that's like a 10. So, or, or being, or having an illness or some, a terminal illness. And so me and my therapist at the, at the OCDI created this like hierarchy of like, what are, what are exposures you can do around that fear? So for instance, I would have to read articles about people dying in gruesome ways or people dying of, you know, cancer. You know, I, I think I was reading there like a cancer blog and it was like this terminal woman's um, like journey through like up until she died. And so um, I would have to read that. And then ultimately you just have to sit with like the level of anxiety that you're feeling. So like the idea is that like you kind of either kind of a combination of like becoming desensitized to the anxiety and then just also being able to, to be like, okay, I'm feeling this way. It really sucks. And like, now I'm going to go do this thing that I want to do. And so it's, that's where like the other therapy kind of comes in, which is like ACT therapy, which is acceptance commitment therapy. And it's like, it's, that's also has multiple like components, but part of it is, is yeah, like this, like making space for like those feelings of anxiety and just being like, just being like, okay, that's there. I see you. And now I'm going to go to the movies and I'm not going to bring my heart rate monitor with me, you know? <laughs> yeah, so no, that's you, great. You just kind of take it along as like a passenger, basically. Like your anxiety is like, 
Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of how I think of it now or try to think of it now is just like my, my anxiety is like my passenger basically. It's just coming along with whatever I do. Oh, I love that. I'm going to take that from you. <laughs> that's great. Um, and so I like how you, you described to how, you know, the first medication that you had wasn't so great. And then as you went along, did you end up like changing medications and then finding something that worked better for you? Cause I think it's important for people to know that it's not like a one size fits all yes, thing. That's really important to note. I think medication is really complex and even different types of medic, you know, like even within different classes of medic medications, certain ones work differently on other people, you know, like for, so when I, after I left OCDI and I was still seeing the psychiatrist that I had seen, um, when I first started going to McLean, I, I basically said, Hey, I want to reevaluate that like bipolar diagnosis. Cause I don't think that that, I think that might not be correct. And so and, and and I say that because, um, so SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, um, is like a class of medication that's used to treat OCD. It's like pretty effective, usually in high doses. Um, again, different ones for different people and not always, but it's kind of one of the first things that, that prescribers will go to for treating OCD and illness anxiety too. So, um so, but you can't take it if you're, um, have bipolar one because you can, it can potentially cause mania. So, um, I, I couldn't take this, you know, <laughs> this whole class of medication that was like supposedly the most effective thing that you can take when you deal with OCD. Um, and so I, once I kind of advocated for this like reevaluation, she was like, she, the, the prescriber was just like, yeah, no, I, I'll, I, I can see like where you're coming from that that might not have been like the, the right diagnosis for you. Um, so let's like start you on, on this, you know, SSRI and see how you do. And so, um, so it was basically, you know, starting off at like a low dose to see if I would have a reaction to it and then just kind of, you know, tapering up like, and like, and, and I didn't have a reaction to it. So I ultimately reached like the therapeutic dose for, for OCD and, and I, and, and illness anxiety. And I, I think like, I, I can't say enough about like what a game changer it was for me. Like it was, I mean, it just really, really like opened up like like a door of possibility that I thought had been closed like, you know, seven years ago. I just didn't think, cause this was three years ago. I just didn't think that, that, that this could, that I could ever even get to, to the point where I'm at now. I just, and, and I'm not saying that I, I definitely, you know, don't totally credit the medication. Like I know that like the way I like to describe it is just that like, I feel like, the medication helped to take the like, like if my emotions and the intensity of my anxiety was like running at 150, like all the time, I didn't even have the mental 
space to like use therapeutic techniques because I was so just like, it was just anxiety overload. Like to the point where you're like not functional, like, or I wasn't. And so the, the medication, you know, took that like 150 and brought it down to like a 40 where like, oh, okay. So now if I feel myself like starting to spike and it's not, you know, it's not perfect. I'm not perfect. You know, I, I still, you know, I still check sometimes my, my vital signs if I'm, if I'm having a moment, but I think that, that what it does is it gives me more space to say, like I said, think of my anxiety as like a passenger, like, okay, like I see you there. I hear you like screaming at me and like, now I'm going to go to the pool and swim anyway. And like, that's like, that's, that's what it's like for me. Yeah. And, and what other lifestyle changes did you implement like along? Cause I know you and I talked about this before a little bit briefly. Um, but what, what did you implement along with the medication or even like after the medication, I guess? Yeah. So I think at first, um, you know, it wasn't like this perfectly upward trajectory. Um, but, and I think, you know, but it was definitely like a trend going up. Um, and I, cause I think too, it's important to say that I think all recovery and dealing with mental illness is not linear. Like it is like a up and down kind of like, you know, trending one way or the other, you know, and that's, that for me is like the most helpful way of thinking about it. Um, and so, you know, when I first started when the medication, I was just so like, so like, like hesitant to believe that like I was actually feeling better so like I I didn't make a lot of like lifestyle changes at first I was just like oh okay like I see myself like being able to like go away for the weekend like with my husband and like that's pretty cool um but then like then it's interesting so like probably like like seven months ago, I just was like, I really, you know, I got, I was having like a little bit of like an uptick in my, my health anxiety, illness anxiety. And so I wanted to connect to like an OCD therapist. And so I started talking to him um, and, and he did this really helpful exercise. That's part of the ACT therapy, which is like living according to your values, which is like, okay, so let's make a list of like five things that you think are like your core values. And like, for me, one of them was like being a person that values movement and like taking, you know, being thoughtful about my physical health. And so when we did that exercise, I was just like, okay, like we're going to start, me and my husband are going to start like going for a couple walks like every day and like taking, you know, just getting out and like moving around. And that, you know, transformed into me being like, you know, like I've always loved water and swimming and, and being in the water. And, and so once like pools started opening up after COVID, I was just like, you know, I'm going to, or during COVID, I was just like, you know, I'm going to, I want to join a pool. Like, I just want to, want to swim and so I started swimming and like you know I like I think that that 
was like also that was another thing that I would say was like a game changer for me was like swimming like it's only been five months and like I am just like can see even more of like an improvement in the way I feel physically and also mentally like I like the water I think is just really therapeutic for me like it's the movement but also you know, swimming is such a sensory experience because like you're in water, you're, you know, you're feeling like the temperature of the water and you, maybe you have like certain gear in or whatever. And, and now, you know, the swimming has just become like, like one of the kind of pillars of like my wellness for sure. It, it's really, really, really important to me. Um, and and so that I think is a, is a big part of it. And also, you know, being like, like making like my friendships, like a priority too. Like, I think I went through so many years where I would just be like, oh, well, you know, I, I, I'm having a ton of anxiety today. So like, I can't, I can't keep this plan that I have like with my friend, like I need to cancel so that I, I don't go out into the world and just drop dead. And so now being like, oh no, okay, yeah, I'm gonna, it's important to me to like keep this plan and like go for this walk like with my friend or, you know, gather, like sit outside like in the yard, you know, in social distancing times so of just like, just like keeping those like connections with other people. Um, and then too, you know, like I can't, like I can't say enough for me how big a part of like my wellness my husband is and my father-in-law too. Like they're both like, my parents might listen to this, so I don't want to say anything too bad, but like my, my father-in-law, like, and he and my husband have given me the stability that like I always needed when I was younger. Um, and having some of those like basic needs, like, you know, like Maslow's hierarchy, like housing security, food security, life security, like having those things like in place as like, oh, this is like, this is here. Like, I don't have to worry about that anymore. Um, really is part of what gives me like the space to, to focus on like my, my, my mental health. Yeah, no, that, that was great to hear. And I think it's helpful for others to hear that, especially about like the family piece, because as much as we love like our, our blood family, blood related family, sometimes you find the support in friends or in other people and I think that's true for so, so many of us as well. And the, talking about how you found certain qualities or certain um, things that you didn't have growing up or something like that. I think that that's, that's po really powerful and, and definitely the movement, especially now. And you're reminding me too, how I've, I've been in, in kind of like a funk and I'm like, I definitely haven't been moving as much. So I love the, the swimming Mark's a swimmer too. Yes. <laughs> Um, and what would you say, um, just like kind of 
going on to another topic is kind of like a stereotype or like a myth maybe about somebody dealing with OCD or health anxiety or illness anxiety disorder? Um, so I, I would say like a stereotype would be, um, that, uh, we're all kind of like, you know, crazy and (laughs) non-functional. Like, um, I think that there's so many people, um, you know, folks who I've connected with through, you know, that have OCD, people who I've connected with that have illness, anxiety disorder, who are totally like functional members of society. Like they have jobs, they have friends, they have relationships, they have lives. Um, And I think that, you know, that it's really, you know, because OCD is like considered like a disability, like by, you know, like ADA standards, the Disabilities Act standards. And so I think that, you know, that people might just think of like people who deal with OCD as being, yeah, just like disabled and like not capable of, of living. And then specifically with like illness, anxiety disorder, I think that people are like, you know, like might just think of you as being like totally irrational and and like crazy. Like, I hate to say, you know, crazy again, but just like that irrational like thought. I mean, that I've been, you know, I've had people just be like, well, that's just, that doesn't make any sense. Like you're being crazy. And it's just like, okay, like I, I hear you, but you're not listening to me. Like this feels real to me. And like, and you know, that's, that means something to me from like my own experience. And so, um, yeah, I would say just this idea that we're all, you know, we're all like, you know, totally like irrational. And then also too, that we've like given up on ourselves, I think Mm -hmm. can be something that people think too, you know, you look at somebody who, who has health anxiety, who, you know, struggles with like their weight or something. And you're just like, oh, well, that doesn't make any sense. Take better care of yourself. And it's just like, okay, well, I mean, that's not really the whole story. You know, but like, there's so much, like I, it goes back to what I said of like, just the interconnectedness of like our mental health to like what we're capable of doing with our physical health. Yeah, I agree. And I, I like made a post about this on Instagram, which I don't really post that often, but I, I made a post about how we see people and we might think that they're great based upon what we see when in reality they're suffering and vice versa. And that's a huge, there's such a stigma around mental health to begin with. And then it's like, we, we want to make judgments and we all do it. But I think like, just understanding that mental health does not discriminate and you can't often see it. Um, And then the other idea that OCD is maybe only rituals or only organization or that you like a clean room. And that's the one that I still, you know, I I have friends who will use, you know, like, Oh, I'm so OCD and, and it's, and I, and I don't fault them, but I'm just like, Oh no, you're not. Or maybe you are and you don't know, but like, I just, yeah, that's, that's a tough one. Um, And I I would just say, too, I think that it's, you know, if we can and we feel comfortable, like, 
addressing those things like yes. in the moment is really important. Um, I know just from my own experience recently of like, you know, starting to feel more comfortable, like, you know, calling attention to problematic comments about mental health that are made like at work. And I work in on a team of like clinicians who are therapists and, you know, the way that they'll, they'll talk about a person we're working with even, you know, and, and again, it's stressful work. So you're venting. And then I also think that, yeah, just like, you know, like just being thoughtful of like the words that we use is really, really, really important. And I think that, you know, there's so many things that like people used to say when like I was young that, you know, were just commonplace that like now are totally, you know, people are like, oh wait, no, that's like not acceptable way to speak. Like, and, you know, I, and I'm not trying to say, you know, saying that's so OCD is like akin to, you know, like things that are like actual slurs, but okay. I think it's along that same path of just like being thoughtful about the way we talk. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, and having it be okay to like open a conversation or like a discussion with somebody and just say like, Hey, this is what it is. And because I know some people have never even had the language or heard any of this language to begin with. So that's like a whole, whole other thing. Cause what they might be describing might be what you're dealing with, but they don't know like the word. So I think that's, that's so like really important work too. And at your work too, and just in general, like how do you feel that, you know, the, the pandemic has been affecting people? Obviously you don't know how it's affecting everyone, but how do you think, especially those who deal with health, anxiety, or illness disorder? Um, well, I mean, I don't, so I don't work with anyone who has like OCD or illness, anxiety disorder, but I would say just like from my experience, you know, working with, 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 you know, young adults who, who deal with mental health issues. Um, I think you see a lot of, um, a lot of like increased symptoms, anxiety, um, depression. Um, and I think that's, that comes across for so many people. I mean, I know so many people who, you know, when, when we were in like the, the real throes of like quarantining before things even started to open back up a little who were just like really hurting due to isolation due to you know for people who live alone or might be single and don't have family missing those social connections so much and mm -hmm. you and I think, you know, in my work, that was a big part of it. Like these, these young people and, and others too, but just in relation to my work, you know, like weren't, they weren't able to like meet with their providers in person and like have that same connection that you get when you're doing in-person work versus like telehealth. Like it's just not the same. And it, and, and it's, and I think that, especially not at first. Like, I think, you know, you get used to telehealth. Like I know I've gotten used to it and I actually like it now. Um, but when you're just like, 
well, I don't want to sit on a computer and like talk to this person. Like, I want to go like lay in my bed and like sleep and just forget that this is happening in the world. Like, um, and yeah, so, and, but I, but then on the other side too, I, I think that for my, for my work, like we have seen things start to go the other way and we're still working virtually right now. Although there's like kind of tentative plans for us to maybe start seeing people if they're comfortable with it. Um, but yeah, I think that just that initial shock was like really hard for a lot of, a lot of people. Yeah, no, for sure. I think for everyone. Yeah. And not having those social connections or like just seeing people's faces. It's just, it's difficult. Or like getting a hug, you know? Like, yes. Like just for some people, it's just like, you've, you've been, it's been like months since you've touched another person. And mm-hmm. like, we forget like how important like actual physical touch is to like our wellness is just like, having someone like hug you or shake your hand or rub your arm or whatever, like that kind of touch, you know, just like purely just like intimate, but not sexual is just like really important to, mm-hmm. to, to have. Yeah, no, I agree. And that reminded me of you swimming too, like the sensory, um, just like having the water and cause we often forget, especially like depending on your upbringing, maybe you weren't so connected to like touch or, or whatnot. But I think that like from my friend group in particular, we're very much like that. So it is, it is very hard. And what is up for you for the future? So I know that you're studying right now. So like, tell us a little bit. Yeah. So I am, I'm taking my nursing prerequisites at community college. Um, because it's way more affordable um, and just really great opportunity to like be in my community. Um, and yeah, my, my hope is to do um, a bachelor's of nursing program next year. Um, there's like, it's an accelerated bachelor's where like you take your previous bachelor's degree and you transfer in all of the, the like liberal arts credits and then you just take the nursing courses. So then you end up with like a bachelor's degree um, after about a year, it's really intense. Um, And then after that, just going on to do like the master's portion so that I can be a nurse practitioner because I I think I I originally had thought I wanted to be a social worker um, and, and when I was thinking about my next steps you know, and even the fact that I could have next steps, which is like a huge thing for me. But like, I started thinking about how much like the health part, like the physical health part has connected to the mental for me. And then also just like, again, I really, really, really believe in responsible use of medication. Um, And so a psychiatric nurse practitioner, like if they're doing their job correctly, um, has the ability to prescribe and then also do like provide therapy, um, which is really what I'd like to do, um, is be able to have that like combination practice. Um, because I think that I, I have just like, I know how much 
medication just like totally transformed my life. And I think that there is just so much stigma around taking medication and you, for psych purposes and for any purposes, but for psych purposes, definitely. And like you, you know, like I hear it in, in groups and from others, you know, in, in treatment programs that I've done, I'm just like, well, I'm not taking psychiatric medication. And that's totally your prerogative. Like I get that, like that's, and that's totally legit. And then I also wonder like what's stopping you like from like what's making you close the door completely on that forever, like in that moment, because I know some folks who don't take medications because they've had really bad reactions to them and they've just decided that they don't want to, that's not going to be part of their, their plan. And, and that's great. And then you have other people who just aren't willing to try and you see them, I see them suffering. And I just wonder like if you could push through, if, if, if someone could push through that block and like maybe say, Hey, this might be a really helpful tool. And like, maybe you will or won't need it for your, for your whole life. And maybe you feel like it can like get you like, over this hill in a crisis and then you learn the therapeutic techniques to to carry you through when you come off of the medication and so i really you know i that's a big part of why i wanted to do like the nurse practitioner you know path is just because i i really want to I want to be part of like destigmatizing using medication because I mean, <laughs> I when I was in my training for like my job, we had to give, um, we had to like present to like a group of like bullet points of like you have to do like a story outline of like your life story, and so one of the one of the bullet points was like what was like a turning point for you. And so, you know, just be, I'm like, you know, just being pretty open and like just talking. I was like, you know, my, one of my turning points was like when I started on my medication and, and people like had like a visible reaction, like people had the trainers, other people participating in the training, like people rolling their eyes, someone gasped. I was just like, it shouldn't like this shouldn't be this way like there's so many different paths to like wellness and healing and you know if you're not hurting anyone I just think you need to do like what is best for you and for me that started with like medication and I I'd like to be able to you know offer that to someone else who might feel like taking medication just isn't just this, just, you know, like, like it, it means you're less of a person or something like that, or it means something about your value, your inherent value. If you, if you take medication is just like, you know, I, I just don't think that, that, that we need to suffer with like our, our mental health. If, you know, I think things can be a challenge and like that makes us grow, but what's the distinction between a challenge and suffering? Yeah, no, I love that perspective and it, and it's great how you approach it too, because 
there is like a holistic like perspective on medication. It's not just people are like popping pills either, which if you are like, that's totally fine too. But I think that hearing like somebody like you, who's going into the professional like field and studying, it helps people understand that there's more to it as well. And I think a lot of it might be fear because, you know, we, we kind of know that people have those reactions when they don't understand, you know, and uh, no, I think that that's really inspiring. And it's great that you're going into that field because I know that so many people are going to be um, helped by you in the future. So that's exciting. Thanks. So is there anything else that you'd like to speak about, maybe an accomplishment or something that you'd like to share? Yeah. Um, so recently um, I, I, I was connected with um, in the, at the beginning of COVID kind of um, an OCD support group um, that had moved virtually. And I, I got a lot out of it. And then I also felt like no one there really understood illness anxiety <laughs> um, disorder specifically. Um, Cause again, like I said, you know, before there's similarities between it between illness anxiety disorder and OCD, but there are also clear distinctions. And so I just kind of was like, I, there's like a, a health anxiety subreddit that I actually think, you know, got me thinking, like, I wonder if there's like a support group for, for illness anxiety disorder. <laughs> like, um, and I still don't know the answer to that question because like you Google health anxiety support group and you get or illness anxiety support group and it can be, it's like, it's a weird search term. Like you get all kinds of like strange things that like, you know, it, it would be like, oh, I'm feeling anxious because I have X disease and like this is a support group for people who struggle with, you know, with cancers or something. Um, and the anxiety that they feel around that. And that's not, you know, exactly what this is. So I decided to start my own. Um, so I, um, I have this wonderful friend um, through the OCD group who let me use their contact list um, and their Facebook page to kind of um, to just kind of put the word out that like I was going to do this group. Um, and I didn't, you know, I had no expectations of like what was going to happen. Um, I had never really facilitated a group in my own time, like, and, and especially not, you know, something centered around like something I deal with. So, um, so I, you know, I, I put my, I put my posting out and they sent the email and I got, you know, like, 15 responses. And then when I had my first meeting or, or what I thought might even be the only meeting when like I had my, my first meeting, um, I got like seven people who came and it was like pretty rad. Like it was, and, and it was like a really great conversation. And like, I, I felt like, you know, the people there like were really like, those were like my people who like really understood like, health anxiety, illness, anxiety disorder, like really like, you know, um, I think when you, when you experience mental illness, you, 
you might have a hard time like feeling competent like at certain things and I know for me like seeing people like you can really see them like taking you seriously and like connecting to what you're saying because it's you know it's through zoom so like you're seeing people's faces and people are nodding and they're agree and you're just like oh my god like no these people like really understand like exactly what I'm going through and so you know like I I asked people to like after it was over I like asked people to email if they wanted to meet again and like of the seven people like five emailed me and said they wanted to meet again for sure so I guess I have started a support group which was like pretty pretty awesome yeah that's great and if people are like interested in joining can they um, email you or is there a way for them to contact you or they can contact us first through the podcast as well? Yeah, if they contact you through the podcast, that would be great. Um, and then you can kind of like, you know, send them my way. But yeah, I mean, it's like totally like it's a it's a fledgling uh, endeavor so we'll uh we'll see but definitely like you know I because I do think you know just there's there's a lot of people out there who I mean even if you think like what you know one percent or or even less let's say like 0.5 percent of like the U.S. population like maybe has like some form of of illness anxiety or health anxiety that's you know like to like a million people like that's not like a small number so yeah for sure no thank you for sharing that with us yeah I know that I learned so much from you today and it was so nice talking with you and just soothing any of my like thoughts that are going on in my mind right now it just really helped to speak with you and I'm hoping everyone out there who deals with something maybe the same thing or something similar or just dealing with being isolated during COVID. I'm hoping this episode will definitely help. And thank you so much for, for speaking with me tonight. Thank you. Yeah, this was really great. And I'm, I really appreciate you, you know, yeah, just having me here. This is such a, such a cool thing. So I love talking about this stuff. Thank you. 